Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. I, uh, this week on Tuesday, I'm doing first aid training for the first time. Uh, and as a part of that, I had to do some, some sort of prep, pre- preparation training. You had to do like 165 questions. And one of the questions wasn't a question at all. It was clicking on a YouTube video uh, to watch people doing CPR. And I've got to say, I was actually, and I, with the greatest of respect to people who are really traumatized, I was slightly traumatized by this video. It actually made me go, I'm not sure I want to do first aid training because I don't want to be that guy that has to do that. Uh, what I saw in the video, it took me to a clip uh, from Bondi Rescue. Anyone watch this show? My kids love it, me not so much, but um, it reminds me of Baywatch and Hasselhoff and him. Right? Anyway, <laughs> but they are real lifeguards, right? But there was this scene, and I, and I actually don't know, like I could tell it was old based on the haircuts and the styles and that sort of thing, but also that it was in the old 4-3 scale and not widescreen. So I, I actually don't know whether the scene I saw, would they be allowed to show these days? Because it was full on. It was this, this guy who had essentially drowned in the waves and they pulled him in and the narrator kept saying, this guy is clinically dead. And they, they didn't blur out his face and do anything. They had close-ups of him, like this, his body convulsing and choking and all this sort of thing. And, this CP, and the fact that they filmed it, you know this guy's going to survive, right? You know he's going to pull through. But that didn't, like I'm going, I'm about to learn about stuff that puts me on that scene and makes me responsible to hopefully bring life to a person like this, which is why I started to question whether I want to do first aid training at all. It was full on. The thing is, though, as, as I've already given away, he pulled through. This guy who the, the commentator said about three times, he, he's, he's dead. This guy's dead. But, but he wasn't dead enough that he couldn't come back. And even though he's lying there on the beach, all indications saying he's dead, he was alive again. He was alive again. You have that moment, of he, his face just completely changed from absent and choking and eyes bulging to normality and life. And he was able to say his name. He was able to say where he was and all that sort of thing. So even though he'd been clinically dead and his brain hadn't got oxygen for like four minutes, he was alive. Everything said he was dead. But actually, there was enough in him to come back to life. It's the opposite of a classic movie from the late 80s. Who remembers fondly Weekend at Bernie's? Yes, come on. Anyone in the house? No, I'm not getting a lot of love here. Weekend at Bernie's. I, have, I cannot remember at all the plot. I can't remember exactly what happens. All I remember is there's a guy who's dead and the two main characters have to fool everyone that he's alive. So I, again, I don't, I don't know why, and I've got to say for my research for my sermon today, I didn't go and find Weekend at Bernie's and watch it. So I'm, I apologise for having not done proper research. But I remember this, watching this as a kid. I watched it a few times. Anything my older sister loved, I would love to. She loved this film. I watched it probably four or five times. Still cannot remember anything about it other than... These two young guys have to try and pretend that their mate Bernie is alive when actually he is beyond dead. And you can see how that would set up for hilarity. When someone's uh, you know, dead but looks alive, that's, that's sort of the plot for, uh, for horror movies. But in this case, it's a, it's a comedy. I, I don't know about you. I don't know about you. But for me, I would much rather people thinking I'm dead when I'm actually alive rather than people thinking I'm alive when I'm actually dead. For the church at Sardis, they seemed like they were alive. 
When people looked on and they looked at the church at Sardis, they went, this church is alive. This church is happening. This church has got everything a church should have. That was their reputation. But to Jesus, remember the one who walks along around the lampstands, who knows the churches, he says, you think you're alive, but you're dead. You're Bernie. That's damning. What a hard word. What a hard pill to swallow. As we have every week this week, I've got a copy of the letter here in this envelope to the church at Sardis, and my daughter Matilda is going to come and read it to us now. So let's make her welcome. Let me hold the mic while you have the, the honour of opening the letter. It is a privilege, you know, that only five people get to do it over these five weeks. Just a little bit quicker, it'd be good. To the angel of the church in Sardis writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God, my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Thank you. Very good. This is the word of the Lord. So as we've done each week, let's just work through this letter and understand what's in the heart of Jesus. I, lo- I loved, um, just in our prayer meeting before, uh, Lisa was sharing how this picture she had of Jesus walking among the lampstands. One of the jobs of, of the person who maintained the lampstands was to make sure they were topped up with oil so they kept burning. And that's Jesus' heart here. You know, that's a, that's a pretty strong rebuke. We say, you think you're alive, but you're dead. And I don't know what your view of Jesus is when he says those words, but for me, it's, it's a bit confronting. It's a bit harsh. But we've got to see beneath that is this heart of Jesus to want to keep the flame burning. And when he looks upon us, if there's anything in us that is dying, that is in danger of dying, his heart is to pour oil on the flame that might be flickering a little bit. That's his heart. So as we work through this, let's, let's, uh, let's keep that in mind. Let's, let's work through it verse by verse. These are the words of him in verse 1 who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Just pause here for a minute because we've got a new lots of, lot of seven here. So far we've heard the seven stars and we've heard the seven lampstands, but what's this seven spirits of God? Like the, the stars are the angels of the churches. Some people believe more conservative view. They're like the pastors of the churches, the leaders of the churches. And whatever it is, it's the person who is responsible for that church. That's who the letter is addressed to, to read to the people. And and then the seven lampstands actually represent the church as the light that is shining in the darkness. But this seven spirits, what what is this? Well, again, people who are a lot smarter than me, and to avoid a lengthy sidetrack, people believe this to be, when it says the seven spirits of God, it's actually the Holy Spirit, seven being the perfect number, because the Holy Spirit is perfect, but also these seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit that are, that are mentioned throughout Scripture. Let me draw your attention to one in Isaiah 11. 
says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So the spirit is the spirit of God. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's seven. So this is the spirit that Jesus sends into the churches. You know how when Jesus ascended into heaven, the next big thing that happened is Pentecost. I was reflecting the other day. I reckon that is one of God's favorite moments in history when he sent the spirit. I think his heart was full that day when he went, this is the moment. I'm sending the Spirit. And Jesus here is saying, I'm the one who sends the Spirit. I'm the one who sends. And this is the Holy Spirit that dwells in the church. This Spirit that was prophesied in Isaiah dwells in the church, not, not the building, not the event. The Spirit doesn't just turn up on, on Sunday when our countdown hits zero. Oh, the Spirit's here. The Spirit's turned up. Now He's in your heart and He's in my heart. We are the church. We are the church. The people are the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit, the seven spirit, the seven characteristics of the spirit that lives in us. So Jesus is reminding us here, he is the one who sends that to the church. He's the one who keeps the oil in the lamp so that it burns. And here is the rest of that verse that we've already opened with. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I think it's difficult to get our minds in the, the minds of the, 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 that, the church who was at Sardis, like as they're gathering and they hear this. But I, I feel like this would kind of be a surprise to them because I think they, they probably thought they were doing okay because they were busy. They were doing stuff. They had lots of stuff going on. They had you know, busy, busy uh, ministry. If, if you looked at it today, like some of these other churches we've been looking at, you look at them and go, wow, this is a great church. This is a church I want to be a part of because they're doing so much. And, that, and you'd know that because this church has a reputation of that. You have a reputation of being alive. We're alive. We're, we're alive, church. That's my, my, what they might be called. We are alive, church. Because, you know, you, you, remember that trend where we dropped the name of the church? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Sardis was a church that had a reputation of being alive but was dead. What's interesting about this is this reflects the city of Sardis. Sardis was like a pinnacle city in its day. About 500 years before, before Jesus was born, Sardis was like the center of prosperity. This is where they first found gold and start punching coins, gold and silver. Um, the, the person who was the, the, the king over Sardis was known throughout the land as a pretty prominent and prosperous king. At one point, he was known as the wealthiest man in the world. So Sardis is this city that is built on fame. The, the, where it was set, uh, it was really hard to invade. It was like on a hill and it had really good fortifications. It was really hard to invade Sardis. So what you get is this picture of Sardis being a city that is pretty fond of itself. We're from Sardis. Oh, you're from Sardis. Yeah, we're from Sardis. That great city. Yeah, that great city. In AD 17, there was an earthquake which kind of blew up a lot of that idea in their minds. My goodness, we've had this earthquake. We didn't get invaded by foreign armies, but there was this earthquake and it's kind of from beneath has shattered us. But they quickly got on to rebuilding and it was a remarkable rebuild. They reckon that this, this happened pretty quickly. It was a whole lot of effort, mainly through taxing everyone. Uh, but they didn't quite get back to the glory they had known. So then you're living in this city that you know from, from a long time ago was prosperous and famous. But now there's, there's decay starting to happen. It's starting to fall apart a bit. Like the city, so went the church. We're known for being alive. We're a great church. And they maybe rested on their laurels and decay had started to come, to, and that, but they weren't actually 
aware of this. But Jesus was. Jesus was. We might, we, we, this, is a, this is really important for us in 2022 as we look at the Western church in particular. Because it is really possible to have a lot of spiritual fervor, to have a lot of energy for the things of God, but actually be dying on the inside. It's possible. Spiritual fervor is no indication, or I should say Christian fervor, is no indication or assurance of spiritual life. Let me say that again. Christian fervor, Christian activity and practice and busyness is no indicator of spiritual life. You've got to be so careful here. You, you, can, you can look the part. You can have all the religious pieces in all the right religious places, but be slowly dying on the inside or dead spiritually. This isn't the first time Jesus said something like this to his people. Another time he said it is when he was physically with them and he says it to a group of people known as the Pharisees. Let me read to you Matthew 23 and 27 and 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Man, can you imagine hearing that from the King of Kings? That's harsh. And yet if he says it, it's true. It is possible for us to become like the Pharisees, where we looked apart, everything going well, we're busy, we pray the right prayers, we vote the right way, we believe the right things, we do all the right things, and yet on the inside, we're dying, if not already dead. Let me go on and jump across to Revelation 3, verse 4, part of this letter, because Jesus says something that starts to give that glimmer of hope again, that all of these letters... Let me tell you, by the way, just to, in case you're getting a bit depressed, this ends beautifully well, really, really well. This message and this letter. <laughs> I hope, <laughs> now that I've said it. <laughs> okay. Jesus says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. I'm always a bit uh, wary when I ask this question because I feel like sometimes I'm the only one. It's a bit weird. But has anyone ever had the dream where you go to somewhere familiar like school or like work or even church, a church service, and you're naked? <laughs> ben, ben, you're with me, brother. Everyone else is embarrassed to put their hand up. It's an anxiety dream, I know, but I've had this numerous times, you, you just, you're going about your day and you're talking to everyone like that and then you go, whoa, and you're just so thankful that it's a dream. I, I, I was, I, I could have acted that out this morning to make my point, but I'm glad that I thought better of it. The naked dream is horrible when you rock up and you should be wearing clothes and you're not wearing clothes, it's humiliating. I remember my college graduation, graduating from Bible college, I had no idea what to wear, but I figured, Brooke, my wife is already laughing because she remembers this. But I figured, I'm going to get a gown. They're going to put a gown over everything. Who cares what I wear? This could be the naked dream for real. But I'm going to cover everything up with a gown. Wouldn't that be amazing? Guy graduates from Bible college naked under gown. Like, that would be fun funny. Maybe not. Not everyone thought that was funny. That's okay. But I thought, it doesn't matter what I wear. So I put on this, this button-up shirt, short sleeves. Uh, it was like a checkered shirt. That's sort of the Baptist uniform. Um, and then I put on... Some, some jeans that were pretty... I've been a Bible college student, so they weren't the most expensive jeans, and some skate shoes that were pretty worn. Not because I skated, but because I want everyone to think I skated. So I had these skate shoes on. 
And I remember I rocked up uh, to Bridgman Downs Baptist, that's where the graduation was, and I walked in, the first person I saw was my college principal, and he does this. G'day, Sam. No, no, he didn't even say g'day, he just went, Sam. Okay. And I go, oh, g'day, John, how's it going? Pretty exciting night, yep. Um, where's, everyone, where's everyone getting ready? Oh, over that room over there, so direct you over. Walk in, everybody's in suit and tie. Everybody. And the gown, which I was really wrong about, didn't cover everything. It covers a lot, but not everything. And it has to attach to a button that works if your shirt's tucked in. But I'm pretty cool. I don't like tucking my shirt in. So I didn't tuck my shirt in. But every, as I'm sitting there and standing up, the, the gown would start to pull this up. And I've got a shirt on at the moment underneath. But you can imagine if I didn't, which I didn't, that's what starts to happen, which is a bit Baptist as well. Anyway. I rocked up in the wrong clothes. I still graduated. They still, they still let me graduate. But when you rock up and you're dressed in the wrong way for the moment, it's humiliating. And there can be different degrees of humiliation. I reckon for mums who remember their wedding day, I reckon anything could go wrong on that day except for something happening to your dress. Like I remember on our wedding day, torrential rain in the morning and the place we were having our reception got completely washed out. Good news is they gave us the upgrade, which was fantastic. But I think if anything happened... Any, anything is, is, is forgivable and forgettable except for something happening to your dress as a bride. If that dress gets ruined in some way that everyone can see, it's like cancel the wedding. It'd be humiliating to rock up to your wedding with a soiled dress. This is what Jesus is saying about soiled clothes. There's this picture of our, our sin, not only the sins that that we are guilty of, but the sins of others that have hurt us and impacted us. There's this, there's this image that Jesus uses of soiled clothes as an illustration of that, that before a holy and pure God, our clothes are soiled and much worse than the naked dream, much worse than wearing the wrong clothes to your graduation and much worse even to you ladies who have been married than something happening to your wedding dress is to rock up before a holy, perfect God with soiled clothes. So Jesus' commendation for these few in Sardis, uh, there are some who haven't soiled their clothes. Now I'm going to come back later. I'm just going to park this soiled clothes minute, this soiled clothes bit for a minute, and I want to come back to it later uh, with the good news. With the good news. So Jesus goes on to say in verse two. He doesn't go on to say. We jump back to verse two. Jesus' rebuke, his encouragement, his loving uh, rebuke is: Wake up! Come on, guys! Wake up! Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. The last bit of this, of this verse, by the way, would have been really familiar to people who lived in Sardis. Because remember I was talking about how the city was impenetrable? Two times in, in history, uh, Sardis got invaded. And the way that the, the, the invading army came was at night in silence. So they like crawled up quietly and they climbed over the wall and they got in. So they came like a thief in the night. So when Jesus writes this to Sardis, it's familiar. Like Jesus knows the history. Jesus knows the city. He doesn't just know the church. He's interested in the city. So he uses language that is resonant with them to describe what it will be like for them. If you are not alert... And you rest into this, we are good because we are from Sardis and we are the church of Sardis. I will come like a thief in the night. You won't see me coming, but I will come and I will take away the lampstand and you will no longer be who you're meant to be. The church of Sardis got sucked in like the city in this false sense of security, 
We're fine. The Pharisees were like this too, by the way. We're fine because we are the teachers of the law. We are the, Pharise- we are the elect ones. We are good. Nothing can ever happen. The false prophets of old. No, we're not going to go into exile for very long because we are the people of God. They were like these whitewashed tombs. We can feel that way too. We are, we are the church. We are, we're the church. We're going to be here forever. Jesus says, no, no, if, if you don't wake up, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief in the night when you don't see me coming. But here again, the little glimmer of hope. See, Jesus says at the beginning, you think that you're alive, but you're dead. You have this reputation of being alive, but you're dead. But in this verse I just read, it says, strengthen what is dying. There's like the flame is flickering. The flame that, that, that could, you're looking at it and you're going, that's not going to last, that's not going to last. Jesus is seeing that, saying it's almost dead. It's not quite dead. But wake up and strengthen it because I, I want the best for you. I want you to be the church that I died for you to become. Strengthen what remains. Bring life to what might be dying. Here's the thing, though, about someone who is dying or someone who is dead and how they wake up. They don't have the inner resources in that moment to bring life to themselves. Go back to Bondi Rescue for a minute, something I never thought I'd never say in a sermon. But that, that guy who was dying on the beach, he's, he's dead. If he's there on his own, if he's at a beach where we go for our holidays or we don't like the beach being full of people, he's dead, he's gone. But no, there were four or five lifeguards around who knew what to do and they had the resources, they had the, the skills, they had the, or everything that this guy needed to be made alive again, to wake up again. You can't raise yourself. Even if you are only dying and the flame is flickering, you cannot find what you need to make that fire burn bright again. You don't have the resources. You need external help. You need someone who has the experience, someone who has the power, who has the knowledge, who has all of the stuff in order to come and breathe life into you again. To wake up from death, you need a power from outside of yourself. And when it comes to spiritual life, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about physical life. He's talking about spiritual life. But I want to tell you that the overlap between the physical and the spiritual, when you have spiritual life, that leads to eternal physical life. That's, that's the promise. When we have spiritual life given to us by Jesus, it leads to eternal physical life after death. Jesus says to those of us who feel like we're in that place of dying, when we go, what can we do? We cannot give life to ourselves. We need a power from without us, from outside of us to who has the experience and the skills and the power to be able to do that. Jesus says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He's the one, like the lifeguards on the beach that day, but so much more, who would come and breathe life into your spiritual person and into your physical person and every other person that you are. He goes on to say, this is on the screen, but the next part of that verse, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Spiritual life gives eternal physical life. And this is grace. This is the great. Whenever you read Jesus sounding harsh, always know this. He's being harsh because he wants to move us. And almost, if I can say this, he wants to trap us into grace. He wants us to see we are helpless and hopeless without him. So when he says you're dead and that seems harsh, what he's trying to do is get you to go, I am dead, but I need help. Who do I get help from? You get help from me because I'm the resurrection and the life. Let me show you my power. Let me show you my goodness. Let me show you my love. Jesus is always doing that. 
always thinking of ways to get us to think that way so that he can lead us to that place where we can experience his power and his grace. He's always doing that, even when he sounds harsh. And that's what Jesus is doing here with the church at Sardis and what he would do with us today for those of us who feel dead on the inside. I am the resurrection and the life. What seemed harsh out of the mouth of Jesus is always motivated by love. And it's always with a desire to save us and to give us the abundant life that only he can give us. If you need resurrection today, Jesus is the one with the power and the will to do it. There is nobody else. Jesus says in verse 3, Remember therefore what you received and heard, Hold it fast and repent. There's no apostolic letter in the New Testament to the church at Sardis. You know, with the other other letters like Ephesians and Corinthians and Romans and uh, Thessalonians, they're all churches to letters to churches that existed like Sardis. Um, But we don't have a letter to the church at Sardis. But what I would love to do is borrow something that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, which is a church we looked at two weeks ago, who was in a very similar situation to the church at Sardis, if you haven't been able to connect those dots yet. Paul writes some great words to the church at Ephesus that they don't have the problem that they had when the letter was written from Jesus through John to the church at Ephesus in Revelation. But he talks about what the thing is that we need to remember. The thing is that here Jesus says, remember therefore what you received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you are dead, this is what we need to hold on to. Ephesians 2 Verses 1 and then verses 4 to 5, we could read the whole of the chapter or the whole of the book, but here it is. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That is what we hold on to. That is the thing we need to remember. We don't go, I'm dead. I need to, I need to find a way to, to revive myself. No, you've got to hold on to this. You've got to hold on to grace. You've got to remember, Jesus, you died. You were the perfect one. I was dead. I, had, I, can't, I can't resurrect myself. I don't have that power, but you did that. You came and breathed life into me. That first moment that I understood who you are and what you did for me, that was the moment where spiritual life came. And I need to remember that again. And for some of us who have been Christians for such a long time, this is, the, this is going back into the letter to the Ephesians. Remember your first love. Remember that you were once dead, but now you're alive with Jesus. Remember that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have been raised up and you've been sat right alongside Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. I mean, that's grace, right? What, what right do we have to sit with Jesus at the right hand of the Father? We have no right to be there. There's nothing that we've done that would earn us that position. And yet that's the gift of God. That's the gift of God in Jesus. And I tell you, death begins to stalk us when we forget this stuff. Let me take a detour for a minute to help us remember. Maybe help us to wake up for those who need it to the immeasurable mercy that God has shown us and the depth of his amazing love for us. I want to take a detour uh, you know, we know, Revelation is this vision that John has as he's taken up into the heavenlies. There are a few other letters in the Bible that are like this as well. Zechariah is one of them, where Zechariah, the prophet, is taken up into this vision 
where he is, finds himself in the courtroom of heaven. Okay, so imagine a courtroom and imagine God is the one sitting on the judgment seat, the one who is the judge of all things. And, the, and it's like a courtroom. There is, there is the prosecutor, there's the defendant, there's all that sort of thing going on. And this is, a, this is a pretty amazing courtroom. There's angels everywhere as well, which you just get your head around that and we'll move on. So this is, this is what's going on in the courtroom of heaven. And Zechariah has this vision. And chapter 3 describes this scene. What's going on for God's people at this moment when, when Zechariah has this vision is they've come back from exile and they're about to rebuild the temple. So this is a moment of hope. This is a moment of restoration. 70 years has passed in Babylon. They're back in Jerusalem. And the context is Joshua, who's about to be reinstated, not Joshua from earlier, but Joshua, who's the high priest at the time. He's about to be reinstated into the service of the temple. And this is that scene. This is that scene. We get a picture of this. And this is Zechariah writing. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I've taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Does this sound familiar? To what we've read earlier in Revelation. Then I said, this is Zechariah, imagine him shouting out from the gallery, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Okay, let, let, me, let me break this down a little bit so you can understand what's going on here. There's some, there's some people who are, who are named as being in the courtroom. The first, first one I want to look at is Satan the accuser. That word Satan, what that means is accuser. And this is his role. This is what he does. His ambition... He loves death, and he particularly loves death for the people of God. So when you're dying on the inside, he's probably enjoying that. His ambition is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he makes his case before God. God allows Satan, the accuser, to come into the courtroom, and he's standing there accusing Joshua. And this is what I imagine he's saying. This guy? Really? You're going to put this guy back into the temple? Look at him. Look at his clothes. He's a sinner. He's as guilty as the rest of them. Look at him. And you know what? Here's the irony. He's right. Even though Satan is called the father of lies, the way he lies is sometimes he twists the truth. And he wants to condemn, and he wants God to condemn Joshua. Look at this guy. And if you were standing before the throne of God right now, Satan would be saying the exact same thing about you. And in this moment where we feel like we might be dying on the inside, Satan is loving that and he wants to keep you there and he wants to say to God, this guy, this girl, are you kidding? Have you seen what's going on in their heart? Have you seen what they've been up to? Are you joking? Look at their clothes. That tells you sin all over the place. You know and I know as we hear that voice of condemnation, we hear that voice of accusation, our fear is, Satan has a pretty good case. And as we stand there before the throne of God in our filthy clothes, we are petrified because this guy's right. We already feel humiliated to stand in the presence of a holy and perfect God in filthy clothes. And now he, this guy here is pointing out all the reasons why we shouldn't be there. And we fear he has a case until the angel of the Lord speaks up. 
And I want to tell you, without going into a big, long theological sidetrack, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, this is Jesus. Because he speaks with the authority of Jesus. The angel of the Lord. He says, shut up, Satan. You, you, you may have a case, but you know what? I am the judge and I'm making this call. Be silent. Be silent. And when Jesus speaks, Satan listens and he is quiet. And he says of Joshua, is this not a stick I've snatched from the fire? Yeah, the fire's burning and I've, I've picked up a stick. The stick is charred. The stick is dirty. The stick is filthy. But I've decided. I've chosen them. I've chosen Jerusalem. I've chosen Joshua. So you be silent and watch this. Get those dirty clothes off him. Put on some fine clothes. Satan is going nuts in the corner. This is not right. This is not fair. No, but it's love and it's grace. Put clean clothes on him. And as you and I stand there before the throne of God, that's what Jesus does for us, what he wants to do for us when we feel like we're dead or dying. Get rid of those filthy clothes and put on the clean clothes. I love, I love how Zechariah chimes in because Gateway Redlands, this is the church we want to be. You know what sometimes when the church is at its worst and at its ugliest is when we take the side of the accuser and we go, yeah, that person. Hey, pastor, do you know what they've done? Hey, hey, you, see that person sitting a few rows in front of us? Do you know last night I saw them? No, we want to be like Zechariah. When Jesus puts the clean clothes and we shout from the galley, put a clean turban on their head as well. This is awesome. This is amazing what's happening right here. Because I know I've been there as well. Now I see another person being healed, another person being restored by the grace and love of Jesus. I'm celebrating as well. I'm not siding with the accuser and getting all gossipy. I'm celebrating this person who was once lost but is now found, who was dead but is now alive. That's the church we want to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Here's what's not in the scene, but I think is every time in the scene. It's not written in Zechariah's transcript, but I reckon this is what happened, something like this. While everyone was celebrating and the angels are cheering that Joshua has been restored and given this new role, it's what happens in the next few verses. I reckon the angel of the Lord, see what happened with those filthy clothes is they didn't just vanish, poof, and they're gone. They didn't just disappear into the ether. I reckon while everyone's celebrating, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, goes over and he picks up the filthy clothes and he holds them in his hand and he starts to put them on. He takes up our filth. He takes up both our sin and the sin that's been done to us to cause our garments to be filthy and just quietly in the courtroom while everyone else is celebrating, he puts on our filthy clothes and walks them to the cross. You, you don't have the ability to clean your own clothes. You don't have the power or the experience. You just don't have what it takes to clean your own clothes. You need new garments. You need to be given new garments by someone who has the power to bring life where there is death. But the problem is in a courtroom, justice needs to be served. And the, and the dirty clothes aren't just dealt with Satan still there. Go, what about the dirty clothes? Jesus says, well, watch. And he goes and experiences death on the cross to remove our sin from us. That is the love of Jesus for you. 
That is the grace he wants to show you. This is what he wants you to remember. This is what he wants us to remember and never forget. Would there ever be a moment where we forget the incredible grace and love that Jesus has shown us in wearing our filthy clothes to the cross? Come back to Revelation. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Not because we found the best Omo product and just washed those suckers day in, day out until they were shining white. We just could not do that. But because we were gifted the clothes from Jesus. And listen to his voice. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Again, we're back in the courtroom before my Father and before my angels. And as we stand in that throne room of heaven, Jesus goes, yes, this one, this one, this one I love. This one who is the apple of my eye. This one who I've given new clothes to. This one who I've died to remove their filthy clothes. This one, Father, is with me. Remember. Remember. And life will start to breathe back into your spiritual lungs. just all close our eyes for a minute I reckon there's two kinds of people this morning who really needed to hear this message I reckon the first group of people is those who need the wake up call who when Jesus says wake up you hear that I want you to hear not a harsh rebuke here from Jesus but I want you to hear a shout of love coming from him to you I want you to see and hear and understand and know his desire he is the resurrection and the life he wants you back he wants to have your heart again whatever is dying in you he wants to give life to again and he knows and you know you can't get it through striving to do better but by coming again to the one who will resurrect you and give you life that's you, if you have known the love of God, if you have known the grace of God, but you feel that right now there's some stuff inside of you that is dying, and it could be any, anywhere along that path of dying. Just, just that remembering, oh, I've forgotten again, God. Just in, the, just in these last few days, I've forgotten again your grace and your love. Right through to those who feel like they're on the brink, like I could just so easily walk away right now. Just with every eye closed, just raise your hand. I'd love to lead you in a prayer. If, you, if that wake-up call is for you this morning, just own it and by, by raising it, not to make me feel good about who this message is connected with because you're saying to Jesus, come, and I'm coming to you. I'm coming back. Just raise your hand. God wants to bless you this morning. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you that whenever we sense a harsh word from you, your motivation is always love. It's always restoration. And for those who raise their hands, God, breathe life now. Holy Spirit, as you're hovering over them right now in the name of Jesus, come and breathe life into them. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding all those things that we read about in Isaiah. Come Holy Spirit and breathe life again into their spiritual lungs, I pray. 
Holy Spirit, for those who maybe didn't raise their hand, who probably should have, I pray you would bring, Holy Spirit, a self-awareness to them right now. Help them to see their state, that you would breathe life into them. Help us to remember. Just with your eyes still closed, I I, I reckon there, there might be a few people here this morning who... To use the metaphor in this letter, uh, in Revelation, also Zechariah's vision, who who are wearing filthy clothes, who have never never had them dealt with by Jesus. You've actually never experienced, for you it isn't a matter of remembering what once happened, for you it's actually never happened. You've never had that moment where you have trusted Jesus to come and take your filthy clothes from you and wear them to the cross where he dies in your place. He experiences the death that we were supposed to have and offers you both spiritual life that then leads to, as well, physical life. And it would be your moment this morning to say, yes, I want to find myself like Joshua did that day. I want to find myself before the throne room of heaven and have my filthy clothes taken off me because of my own sin, but also because of my shame, the sin that others have caused in my life, the sin that's impacted me. I want that dealt with. I want it gone. I want to know spiritual life. I want to know abundant life from the only one who can bring it. And that's Jesus, the one who wears my, would wear my filthy clothes to the cross. And if that's you this morning, if you've never had that moment, if you've never said to Jesus, take my filthy clothes, wear them to the cross. I know in this moment, my clothes are filthy. And I want that spiritual life that you promised. Can you just lift your hand, raise it high? If there's anyone here this morning, take our sin away. The only one who can take our shame and cover our shame. We thank you that you did that on the cross. This is why we're here today. This is what the church is. This is why the church at Sardis existed and this is why we exist today because we are a people who are centered on that event in history when you took our filthy clothes and you wore them on the cross to deal with them once and for all. Help us as Gateway Redlands never to forget, but always to remember who we are. And may we be a church like Zechariah, who when we see this happening in the lives of others, we are yelling from the gallery, put a clean turban on their head. We love you, Jesus. We love you because you first loved us. We love your grace. We love your kindness. We welcome your rebuke and your challenge when when, when it's needed because we know that it's always inspired and motivated by love and a desire for restoration. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you continue to breathe life into us. We ask it in Jesus' name. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know. 